My name's Joe, and I like to talk about global events, which major news outlets often skip over. I do this using a simple 5WH format, quickly addressing in no particular order the who, what, where, when, why, and how of any given event. It is my hope that this is enough to whet your appetite and leave you better equipped to chat around the water cooler. As a quick aside, this week might be a little bit rougher than normal. I'm on holiday out in Sorrento recording this in a hotel room, and frankly there are better things to be getting on with. So today I'll be talking about allegations that Venezuelan troops have been supporting armed insurgencies conducting atrocities against civilians in the border regions of Colombia. The situation has recently been highlighted by Human Rights Watch, and clearly exposes the issues related to the exercise of government power over remote populations in inhospitable terrain in a region with a long history of insurgency, banditry, and criminality. So, I think it's probably best that we jump in with the where. We are talking about Arauca Department in Colombia and Apure uh, State in Venezuela. Venezuela and Colombia are the northernmost countries on the main South American Mount Lamas. Colombia is connected directly to Panama, to the northwest, which links it to the isthmus connecting North and South America, and Venezuela is to the east. Uh, Brazil, Peru, and Ecuador form the southern flank of uh, Colombia, and Venezuela itself also has a southern border with Brazil, and then an eastern border, border sorry, with Guyana. The Arauca department is in the east of Colombia. It's sparsely populated, in common with a lot of the rest of the east of the country, and the terrain transitions from dense woodland or jungle in the north and west to mountainous highlands in the east and south. The population is, relatively, more densely focused in the forested lowlands, thinning significantly as altitude increases. A puree state, Venezuela, is shaped a bit like a frying pan. The handle of the pan extends across the northern border of Arauca, and the main mass, sort of the pan, of the state uh, is located mostly actually to the west of Arauca. Uh, the handle is a continuation of forest and jungle, and uh, the body of the pan is more mountainous in line with the uh, south and uh, east of Arauca province. So, getting on to the what, what do we actually care about here? Well, in the first quarter of the year, there has been a significant upswing in violence between uh, two main insurgent groups in the area, the JEC and the ELN. These groups had formerly been cooperating. At the moment, the ELN appears to be conducting an offensive against the JEC, and the local population has reported numerous instances of ELN members arriving in settlements, alongside troops of the Venezuelan military, and seeking named individuals. These individuals are then executed on the spot or detained, and a significant number of those who are detained are often found dead shortly afterwards. Both sides have also used more traditional terrorist tactics, including the use of car bombs against civilian targets. The groups are also reportedly enforcing codes of social conduct. I wouldn't necessarily go as far as to call them laws, but something similar. A significant portion of their you know, less violent activities includes meeting out punishments for theft, acts of violence, or other perceived offences. Um, further to that, they're also taking on a sort of pseudo-regulatory role. They've been issuing fishing permits, controlling debt repayments, mandating closing times for businesses, bars as well as enforcing curfews. In some respects, it appears they're enforcing what they consider to be the main roles of any, a state. However, perhaps unlike a state, at least a modern state, these groups' main means of enforcing their rules appears to be disproportionate and gratuitous violence. 
Colombian police have reported 103 murders in the Arauca uh, province between January and February, and this is the highest level on record since 2010. This also needs to be very heavily caveated. There are numerous social pressures, most importantly the eternal rule of snitches get stitches, uh, which discourage people from reporting crimes against them, so it is likely that the death toll is significantly higher. You can also then consider the terrain of the region that makes it quite easy for bodies to um, disappear, more or less without a trace. Um, we also need to have a look at some of the reported abductions. While a significant number of them very rapidly become homicides, there also remain a significant number of missing people. The underlying causes for these disappearances remain unclear, but there is circumstantial reporting to suggest that forced exile is being used as one of the punishments at the group's disposal. These abductions and disappearances also provide an avenue of recruitment for the groups. Adolescent males, in particular, have been reported as being taken at gunpoint with threats made against their family in order to induce compliance. To date, the Colombian authorities have been taking action against this, although it appears to have somewhat limited effect. And we'll discuss a little bit of what's been going on shortly. So now we'll get on with the WHO. And I think we're going to have to start with the civilian population as they are the, the centre of all of this. So close to 4,000 people are reported to have having fled their homes in the first quarter of 2022, out of a total population of approximately 270,000 in the Arauca department. As with the numbers of homicides mentioned earlier, however, I think the real number may be markedly higher as there are still the social incentives not to, to come out with crimes or abuses committed against them. We also need to consider amongst this population that approximately 5,000 of the members of the population are those of indigenous origin and it appears that due to their life, the more remote lifestyle and other pressures against them that they are suffering disproportionately from the burdens of this, this uh, uptick in violence. So... Broadly speaking, the inhabitants live on a wide socioeconomic spectrum, but a non-trivial number live as subsistence farmers or rely on some element of hunting and gathering to support their lifestyles. This, again, as per my comment regarding the indigenous, means that they are more prone to suffer from the effects of things like curfews and enforced uh, limitations within their village. It, you know, they're not cut off to only being able to pop to their local shop, they're cut off from you know, access to wild food supplies. In terms of the uh, insurgent-type groups, uh, we'll start off with the JEC, or the Joint Eastern Command. So the JEC are a insurgent criminal organisation, which is headed up by a bunch of former members of the FARC or FARC. This in turn was a leftist revolutionary group which waged a bloody civil war against the Colombian government since the mid-60s. FARC signed a peace deal with the government in 2016. This led to upwards of 13,000 fighters giving up their weapons and joining an agreed process to re-enter society's civilians. Um, as with any large group of in excess of 13,000 people, not everyone was entirely agreeable to this, and a number of these dissatisfied individuals uh, formed the nexus for, for the JEC. We also have the ELN. Uh, being a Spanish acronym, it's actually the National Liberation Army, um, and they're another notionally leftist revolutionary group. They're significantly smaller than FARC was in its heyday, but now probably on par roughly with the JEC, and this group has remained active despite efforts to bring about a similar negotiated surrender. So why we're interested in what these guys are up to at the moment is that, as with any revolutionary or insurgent group since the dawn of civilization, these groups have had to seek a source of funding to support their operations. 
in practice, this has led to criminal activity and you know, actions which prey upon the local civilian population. In this case, their unique geography has provided them with a particularly lucrative source of income, i.e. narcotics. We'll discuss this more in detail later, but I think there needs to be a recognition that these groups are less like your sort of stereotypical insurgents group like Al-Shabaab, and probably have some connections that are pretty close to being a cartel or a mafia. We also then have the, uh, the Venezuelan troops that have gotten involved. The local civilian population have reported that the troops they've seen have been wearing the insignia of the FANB, FANB, and the GNB. The FANB is the National Bolivaran Armed Forces of Venezuela. If you want to know why we care about the Bolivaran bit of that name, uh, Mike Duncan's Fantastic Revolutions podcast has a series on the Latin American revolutions, and that will tell you everything you need to know about Bolivar. He's a, a key historical figure in Venezuela, and the Venezuelan regime leans heavily onto this historical legacy as part of its effort to legitimize itself. I've always been somewhat skeptical of people who, uh, you know, put historical legacy items into the name or the words democratic or glorious or whatever, as it's generally a signpost that the organization itself is the exact opposite of what it pretends to be, and I'm not entirely sure that Simon Bolivar would have been particularly keen on the Venezuelan regime. But that's not what we're here to talk about. FANBI are Venezuela's conventional regular armed forces, and it notionally fulfills all the roles you'd expect it to. National defense, support to the civil power in times of crisis, internal security to some extent, and counter-narcotics operations. We then have the GNB. This is the Bolivaran National Guard, because everything in Venezuela is the Bolivaran something, um, and it's technically the part of FANBI which has a more internal focus. They're uh, the fill the niche of a militarized police, in some sense similar to the Italian Calabinieri, and they are equipped to act as light infantry in support of the regular army in times of war. So this should tell you that they aren't just hanging about with a little revolver on their hip. These guys have some you know, reasonably serious kit if they want to use it. Um, if you were to want to tell the difference between these groups, uh, and you can't get close enough to see their badges, you can do this by their berets. The army regularly wears uh, black or dark green, and the National Guard wear maroon not to be confused with airborne if you've got your European hat on. In both cases, the Army and National Guard are credibly reported as being uh, fully integrated into the local narcotics trade. Members, from the lowest ranks, the guys manning the checkpoints, to the highest ranks of the general staff, actively use their de facto control of borders and the Venezuelan road network to profit from narcotic smuggling. This is entirely in the face of the fact that counter-narcotics tasks are the, or one of the key functions that they serve. On the Colombian side of things, the Colombian army has a significant presence in Aruca department, somewhere in the region of 6,800 troops, 600 of which have only recently been mobilised into the department in order to enable a recent wave of operations. This later batch of troops were inserted via armoured vehicle and helicopter, and based on this somewhat more dynamic method of arrival, rather than simply bolstering local garrisons, I would suggest that they may stem from a more specialised branch of the Colombian military, although I can't really be any more specific than that. There are also a myriad of Colombian civil organisations getting involved. From a government perspective, there are a wide range of varied obligations, from the municipal to the state and national levels, uh, as regards to how they deal with civilians in these times of crisis. Uh, additionally, as a legacy of Colombia's civil wars, there is also a separate victims unit which is responsible for the provision of food and health supplies to internally displaced persons. However, the framework in which they're operating is 
being caught somewhat flat-footed by the current situation. We'll be discussing that a bit later. So moving on to when, this is going to be a very brief section. Uh, as you can imagine from the description of the terrain and the situation, things are coming out in drips and drabs and a clear timeline is not really available. What we can say is that up until late 2020, the ELN and the JEC were, to at least some extent, cooperating with each other. It is then believed, by Colombian authorities at least, that one major ringleader was killed and this upset a delicate power balance leading to the beginning of the current conflict. So the violence began to occur early January 2022 and this then also acted as a precursor for Venezuelan forces beginning a spate of operations against the JEC uh, initially in Venezuela and as the uh, ELN has moved in to conduct operations against the JEC in Colombia Venezuelan forces have come along with them. In response to this uptick in violence, the Colombian army mobilised a significant new portion of troops into Aruca uh, department, and they began offensive operations against the myriad insurgent groups in February. And this more or less leaves us to, the, the, as far as I understand, the status quo at the moment, where the Colombian army is involved, but doesn't seem to be having any particular notable success. Refugees continue to pour out of Apure and into Arakua, uh, causing the current situation to continue. And in all cases, both the ELN, JEC, and actually the Venezuelan troops all seem to be continuing to conduct atrocities against the civilian population. So now we get on to the why and the how. As I just said, the Colombian government believes the most recent wave of violence was initiated by the killing of a gang ringleader, upsetting in turn a delicate balance between the JEC and the ELN, and while I think it's pretty credible that something like this could have been the spark, the extent to which this fire has spread indicates there were a number of other fuel sources, shall we say. There has been a persistent level of conflict in Venezuela's Apure uh, state, principally between former FARC groups and the Venezuelan government for the last few years. This has led to a constant flow of refugees into Colombia's Aracura. Uh, upwards of 5,000 fled into the department in March 2021 alone, and this means a couple of things. Firstly, the flow of refugees has caused a disturbance in Arauca. The state was already relatively poor and conflict-ridden, and the introduction of a large transient population has only worsened this situation. Second, it created a situation where Venezuelan troops were prepared to and predisposed to counter certain groups, i.e. FARC slash Joint Eastern Command. In this context, their incursions into Colombia may be seen from their perspective at least, less of a sort of invasion and more of a pursuit or a continuation of their normal pattern of activity. We then have the factor of narcotics. As I outlined earlier, despite their profession to have greater causes, the ELN and the JEC and the, indeed the Venezuelan security forces are all deeply involved in the trade of illegal narcotics and the associated smuggling networks. The Colombian government's assessment, and it certainly seems plausible, is that although the conflict began as the result of a single killing, it has now grown into a wider conflict as each group seeks to strengthen its position against its rivals. What remains unclear at this point is whether these efforts are to boost their respective hands for future negotiations, remembering, of course, that they were at least partly cooperating until the end of 2021, or whether the ELN and its Venezuelan helpers are seeking to more permanently cripple or even wipe out Joint Eastern Command. On a higher level, the Aruca and Apure regions seem to have some significant underlying issues that make them challenging for a government to exert control over. 
A significant part of this comes down to the physical and human terrain. The combination of dense tree cover and steep ground seriously impedes the development of infrastructure and naturally separates the population into smaller, more isolated settlements. This in turn prevents any community meaningfully benefiting from economies of scale and also makes them more easy to isolate by hostile actors. The terrain then, in turn, provides cover and concealment which enables criminal or insurgent groups to operate with a high level of freedom. These appear to be the underlying features that have enabled protracted conflicts to brew on both sides of this border and, at least partly, set the conditions for the current outbreak. There's then the, uh, the question of why these groups are conducting actions against the civilian population, or indeed why any groups of this type do. Ultimately, I think that ties back to a comment I made earlier, where I discussed these groups conducting pseudo-state-like activities. Generally, at least in, say, Western Europe, a state is the only legitimate user of violence or force within its jurisdiction. Um, lacking the administrative framework that a you know, fully developed nation-state has, the JEC, ELN and others are using these tactics in order to create a sort of proto-legitimacy for themselves uh, and enable their rule over the, the regions. In the short term, it's also worth considering that terrorised populations are generally easy to control, and in the longer term, the more conditioned people are to comply with the demands of these groups, the more likely are they will continue to comply. There's also a possibility I consider that these groups are just bad, just bad at targeting, um, be it they detaining air quotes informants who have never had anything to do with the conflict, or the reports of a JEC car bomb that hit a building which contained human rights groups and community organisations. In this latter case, the JEC claimed that the building was an ELN Urban Command Centre headquarters. Um, if you take this at face value, it clearly indicates these groups don't have their particular uh, fingers on the pulse of the communities they're operating in, and you know insurgencies with this lack of contact rarely do well. The same can be said when numerous unrelated individuals are disappeared or killed. However, there is an alternative to consider. Um, aside from the possible benefits to these groups of a terrorised population, and that, and that is that human rights and community outreach efforts often have the effect of improving people's quality of life, providing them with options aside from compliance with these gangs. And this in turn fundamentally undermines the group's efforts to develop their own legitimacy. Taking this view, both JEC and ELN are likely to consider civil society uh, organisations, and civilians more generally, as perfectly viable targets, but they also are probably sharp enough to recognise that simply declaring that, you know, civil society and civilians targets is not going to do them much good. They may have made the assessment then that it is better to achieve this effect while pretending to be clumsy rather than openly admitting that they don't want people to get better and actually don't mind just killing them. We've also, and this is my pop psychology hat here, uh, have to consider the effects of a cycle of violence. We've discussed earlier that these groups are forcibly recruiting adolescent males into their organisations with, with threats against their family and assumedly abusing the individuals themselves once they're recruited. This trauma in turn means that they're likely to resort to using these means against outsiders. Um, in effect, there's no selection criteria to encourage these groups to become less violent. They're indoctrinating kids using violence to use violence against others to recruit more people using violence. There, there's no incentive to break that cycle, um, which is one of the issues why it seems to keep going round and round. Looking over to the Venezuelans, however, I'm a little less clear on what their motivation could be. The narco-aligned troops appear to be firmly tied to the ELN, possibly because they're pre-existing conflict with the JC, possibly because of personal tie-ups somewhere up the chain of command, 
Either way, there's a clear mercenary reason for them to enable the relationship. Narcotic income is of great value to the Venezuelan regime. However, as they are already state agents, it makes much less sense of them to support the repression of civilians uh, on the same basis the gangs may be doing so. To this, I think, I don't really have a, a straight answer for you. I'm not sure that uh, these atrocities are being authorised at any sort of higher level, but from the ground level, it may simply be that they're so used to cooperating with the ELN that they carry out these activities as routine. We've then finally, and somewhat sadly, got the issue of why this isn't being solved. And I think the main issue is that at the moment, Colombia is lacking in resources for this. As I said, the state is already reasonably poorly off. Um, it has its own problems, and increasing this with a, a new swathe of, well, conflict, refugees, and all the associated burdens that come with them is placing more strain than they can deal with upon the local government. We also have to consider that military operations might treat the symptoms of a problem, you know, shooting terrorists, but this doesn't necessarily solve the problem of what creates terrorists in the first place. Um, there's also a legal, a legal difficulty coming on. So the new refugees seem to fall into a grey space. Colombia has a series of victims laws designed to support the victims of their extensive civil war. However, the current uptick in violence is not part of a civil war, it's part of gang conflict, and therefore funding doesn't appear to be allocated for, you know, from the national level to deal with this. Now, this is clearly something that can be fixed with sufficient political will, but it will inevitably require all parties to overcome some significant institutional inertia to reorient and fix this issue. So, by means of wrapping this up, I, I hope that's given you a bit of food for thought to consider why we've got a persistent cycle of violence happening on the uh, Colombian-Venezuelan border. I think whichever way we look at it, this looks to be a bit of a nightmare for the local population, and it seems to be that while there is no quick fix, there are certainly some measures the Colombian government could take that would at least ameliorate the suffering of these people. Otherwise, I guess that's me. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm thoroughly enjoying my, my holiday out in Italy, and I hope you've enjoyed me uh, reaching out to touch base with you anyway. Um, if you've enjoyed it, please hit follow or subscribe or like, or depending on what platform you're listening to. Um, and please join me on Facebook and Instagram. Just search 5WHpod and uh, join the page. I'd love to hear some feedback from you. Otherwise, thanks and see you soon. Cheers. Bye.